0: Book 1, Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Kinsabe ranch in one of its western divisions, near the line fence that divided it from the Osterman holding, Vanamee was harnessing the horses to the plough to which he had been assigned two days before, a stable boy from the division barn helping him promptly discharged from the employ of the sheep raisers after the lamentable accident near the long trestle vanamee had presented himself to harran asking for employment the season was beginning on all the ranches work was being resumed the rain had put the ground into admirable condition for ploughing and annixter broderson and osterman all had their gangs at work thus vanamee was vastly surprised to find los muertos idle The horses still in the barns, the men gathering in the shade of the bunk-house and eating-house, smoking, dozing, or going aimlessly about, their arms dangling. The ploughs for which Magnus and Harran were waiting in a fury of impatience had not yet arrived, and since the management of Los Muertos had counted upon having these in hand long before this time, no provision had been made for keeping the old stock in repair, Many of these old ploughs were useless, broken, and out of order. Some had been sold. It could not be said definitely when the new ploughs would arrive. Harran had decided to wait one week longer, and then in case of their non-appearance to buy a consignment of the old style of plough from the dealers in Bonneville. He could afford to lose the money better than he could afford to lose the season. Failing of work on Los Muertos, Vanamy had gone to Quien Sabe, Annixter, whom he had spoken to first, had sent him across the ranch to one of his division superintendents, and this latter, after assuring himself of Vanamy's familiarity with horses and his previous experience, even though somewhat remote, on Los Muertos, had taken him on as a driver of one of the gang plows, then at work on his division. The evening before, when the foreman had blown his whistle at six o'clock, The long line of ploughs had halted upon the instant, and the drivers, unharnessing their teams, had taken them back to the division barns, leaving the ploughs as they were in the furrows. But an hour after daylight the next morning the work was resumed. After breakfast, Vanamee, riding one horse and leading the others, had returned to the line of ploughs together with the other drivers. Now he was busy harnessing the team. At the division blacksmith's shop, temporarily put up, he had been obliged to wait while one of his lead horses was shod, and he had thus been delayed quite five minutes. Nearly all the other teams were harnessed, the drivers on their seats, waiting for the foreman's signal. ready there?' inquired the foreman, driving up to Vanamee's team in his buggy. ready, sir?' answered Vanamee, buckling the last strap. He climbed to his seat, shaking out the reins, and turning about, looked back along the line, then all around him at the landscape inundated with the brilliant glow of the early morning. The day was fine. Since the first rain of the season there had been no other. Now the sky was without a cloud, pale blue, delicate, luminous, scintillating with morning the great brown earth turned a huge flank to it exhaling the moisture of the early dew the atmosphere washed clean of dust and mist was translucent as crystal far off to the east the hills on the other side of broderson creek stood out against the pallid saffron of the horizon as flat and as sharply outlined as if pasted on the sky the campanile of the ancient mission of san juan seemed as fine as frostwork all about between the horizons the carpet of the land unrolled itself to infinity but now it was no longer parched with heat cracked and warped by a merciless sun powdered with dust the rain had done its work not a clod that was not swollen with fertility not a fissure that did not exhale the sense of fecundity one could not take a dozen steps upon the ranches without the brusque sensation that underfoot the land was alive roused at last from its sleep, palpitating with the desire of reproduction. Deep down there in the recesses of the soil, the great heart throbbed once more, thrilling with passion, vibrating with desire, offering itself to the caress of the plough, insistent, eager, imperious. Dimly one felt the deep-seated trouble of the earth, the uneasy agitation of its members, the hidden tumult of its womb demanding to be made fruitful to reproduce to disengage the internal renascent germ of life that stirred and struggled in its loins the ploughs thirty-five in number each drawn by its team of ten stretched in an interminable line nearly a quarter of a mile in length behind and ahead of vanamee they were arranged as it were en echelon not in file not one directly behind the other, but each succeeding plough its own width farther in the field than the one in front of it. Each of these ploughs held five shears, so that when the entire company was in motion, one hundred and seventy-five furrows were made at the same instant. At a distance the ploughs resembled a great column of field artillery. Each driver was in his place, his glance alternating between his horses and the foreman nearest at hand. Other foremen in their buggies or buckboards were at intervals along the line, like battery lieutenants. Annixter himself on horseback, in boots and campaign hat, a cigar in his teeth, overlooked the scene. The division superintendent on the opposite side of the line galloped past to a position at the head. For a long moment there was a silence. A sense of preparedness ran from end to end of the column. All things were ready, each man in his place. The day's work was about to begin. Suddenly, from a distance, at the head of the line came the shrill trilling of a whistle. At once the foreman nearest Vanamee repeated it, at the same time turning down the line and waving one arm. The signal was repeated, whistle, answering whistle, till the sounds lost themselves in the distance. At once the line of ploughs lost its immobility, moving forward, getting slowly under way, the horses straining in the traces. A prolonged movement rippled from team to team, disengaging in its passage a multitude of sounds. The click of buckles, the creak of straining leather, the subdued clash of machinery, the cracking of whips, the deep breathing of nearly four hundred horses, the abrupt commands and cries of the drivers, and last of all the prolonged, soothing murmur of the thick brown earth turning steadily from the multitude of advancing shears. The ploughing thus commenced, continued. The sun rose higher. Steadily the hundred iron hands kneaded and furrowed and stroked the brown, humid earth. The hundred iron teeth bit deep into the titan's flesh. Perched on his seat, "'the moist living rain slipping and tugging in his hands, Vanamee, in the midst of this steady confusion "'of constantly varying sensation, "'sight interrupted by sound, "'sound mingling with sight, "'on this swaying, vibrating seat, "'quivering with the prolonged thrill of the earth, "'lapsed to a sort of pleasing numbness, "'in a sense hypnotized by the weaving maze of things "'in which he found himself involved.' to keep his team at an even regular gait, maintaining the precise interval, to run his furrows as closely as possible to those already made by the plough in front. This, for the moment, was the entire sum of his duties. But while one part of his brain, alert and watchful, took cognizance of these matters, all the greater part was lulled and stupefied with the long monotony of the affair. The ploughing, now in full swing, enveloped him in a vague slow-moving whirl of things underneath him was the jarring jolting trembling machine not a clod was turned not an obstacle encountered that he did not receive the swift impression of it through all his body the very friction of the damp soil sliding incessantly from the shiny surface of the shears seemed to reproduce itself in his finger-tips and along the back of his head He heard the horse-hoofs by the myriads crushing down easily, deeply, into the loam, the prolonged clinking of trace-chains, the working of the smooth brown flanks in the harness, the clatter of wooden hames, the champing of bits, the click of iron shoes against pebbles, the brittle stubble of the surface ground crackling and snapping as the furrows turned, the sonorous, steady breaths wrenched from the deep, laboring chests, strap-bound, shining with sweat and all along the line the voices of the men talking to the horses everywhere there were visions of glossy brown backs straining heaving swollen with muscle harness streaked with specks of froth broad cup-shaped hoofs heavy with brown loam men's faces red with tan blue overalls spotted with axle-grease muscled hands, the knuckles whitened in their grip on the reins, and through it all the ammoniacal smell of the horses, the bitter reek of perspiration of beasts and men, the aroma of warm leather, the scent of dead stubble, and stronger and more penetrating than everything else, the heavy, enervating odor of the upturned living earth." At intervals, from the tops of one of the rare low swells of the land, Vanamee overlooked a wider horizon. On the other divisions of Kien Sabe, the same work was in progress. Occasionally he could see another column of ploughs in the adjoining division, sometimes so close at hand that the subdued murmur of its movements reached his ear, sometimes so distant that it resolved itself into a long brown streak upon the grey of the ground. Farther off to the west, on the Osterman ranch, other columns came and went, and once from the crest of the highest swell on his division, Vanamee caught a distant glimpse of the Broderson ranch. There, too, moving specks indicated that the ploughing was under way, and farther away still, far off there beyond the fine line of the horizons, over the curve of the globe, the shoulder of the earth he knew were other ranches, and beyond these others, and beyond these still others, the immensities multiplying to infinity. Everywhere throughout the great San Joaquin, unseen and unheard, a thousand ploughs upstirred the land, tens of thousands of shears clutched deep into the warm, moist soil. It was the long-stroking caress, vigorous, male, powerful, for which the earth seemed panting, the heroic embrace of a multitude of iron hands gripping deep into the brown, warm flesh of the land that quivered responsive and passionate under this rude advance, so robust as to be almost in assault, so violent as to be veritably brutal. There, under the sun and under the speckless sheen of the sky, the wooing of the titan began, the vast primal passion, the two world forces, the elemental male and female, locked in a colossal embrace, at grapples in the throes of an infinite desire, at once terrible and divine, knowing no law, untamed, savage, natural, sublime." From time to time the gang in which Vanamee worked halted on the signal from foreman or overseer. The horses came to a standstill, the vague clamor of the work lapsed away. Then the minutes passed. The whole work hung suspended. All up and down the line one demanded what had happened. The division superintendent galloped past, perplexed and anxious. For the moment one of the ploughs was out of order. A bolt had slipped, a lever refused to work, or a machine had become immobilized in heavy ground, or a horse had lamed himself. Once, even toward noon, an entire plough was taken out of the line, so out of gear that a messenger had to be sent to the division forge to summon the machinist. Annixter had disappeared. He had ridden farther on to the other divisions of his ranch to watch the work in progress there. At twelve o'clock, according to his orders, all the division superintendents put themselves in communication with him by means of the telephone wires that connected each of the division houses, reporting the condition of the work, the number of acres covered, the prospects of each plough traversing its daily average of twenty miles. At half-past twelve, Vanamee and the rest of the drivers ate their lunch in the field, the tin buckets having been distributed to them that morning after breakfast. But in the evening, the routine of the previous day was repeated, and Vanamee, unharnessing his team, riding one horse and leading the others, returned to the division barns and bunkhouse. It was between six and seven o'clock. The half-hundred men of the gang threw themselves upon the supper the Chinese cooks had set out in the shed of the eating-house, long as a bowling alley, unpainted, crude, the seats benches, the table covered with oilcloth. Overhead, a half-dozen kerosene lamps flared and smoked. The table was taken as if by assault. The clatter of iron knives upon the tin plates was as the reverberation of hail upon a metal roof. The ploughmen rinsed their throats with great draughts of wine, and their elbows wide, their foreheads flushed, resumed the attack upon the beef and bread, eating as though they would never have enough. All up and down the long table, where the kerosene lamps reflected themselves deep in the oilcloth cover, one heard the incessant sounds of mastication, and saw the uninterrupted movement of great jaws. At every moment one or another of the men demanded a fresh portion of beef, another pint of wine, another half loaf of bread. For upwards of an hour the gang ate. It was no longer a supper. It was a veritable barbecue, a crude and primitive feasting, barbaric, homeric. But in all this scene Vanamy saw nothing repulsive. Presley would have abhorred it, this feeding of the people, this gorging of the human animal eager for its meat. Vanamee, simple, uncomplicated, living so close to nature and the rudimentary life understood its significance. He knew very well that within a short half-hour after this meal the men would throw themselves down in their bunks to sleep without moving, inert and stupefied with fatigue till the morning. Work, food, and sleep all life reduced to its bare essentials uncomplex honest healthy they were strong these men with the strength of the soil they worked in touch with the essential things back again to the starting point of civilization coarse vital real and sane for a brief moment immediately after the meal pipes were lit and the air grew thick with fragrant tobacco smoke on a corner of the dining-room table a game of poker was begun one of the drivers a swede produced an accordion a group on the steps of the bunkhouse listened with alternate gravity and shouts of laughter to the acknowledged story-teller of the gang But soon the men began to turn in, stretching themselves at full length on the horse blankets in the rack-like bunks. The sounds of heavy breathing increased steadily. Lights were put out, and before the afterglow had faded from the sky, the gang was asleep. Anime, however, remained awake. The night was fine, warm. The sky silver-gray with starlight. By and by there would be a moon, in the first watch after the twilight a faint puff of breeze came up out of the south from all around the heavy penetrating smell of the new turned earth exhaled steadily into the darkness after a while when the moon came up he could see the vast brown breast of the earth turn toward it far off distant objects came into view the giant oak tree at Hooven's ranch house near the irrigating ditch on Los Muertos, the skeleton-like tower of the windmill on Annixter's home ranch, the clump of willows along Broderson Creek close to the long trestle, and, last of all, the venerable tower of the Mission of San Juan on the high ground beyond the creek. Thitherward, like homing pigeons, Vanamee's thoughts turned irresistibly. Near to that tower, just beyond, in the little hollow, hidden now from his sight, was the seed ranch where Angele Varian had lived. Straining his eyes, peering across the intervening levels, Vanamee fancied he could almost see the line of venerable pear trees in whose shadow she had been accustomed to wait for him. On many such a night as this he had crossed the ranches to find her there. His mind went back to that wonderful time of his life sixteen years before this, when Angele was alive, when they too were involved in the sweet intricacies of a love so fine, so pure, so marvellous, that it seemed to them a miracle, a manifestation, a thing veritably divine, put into the life of them and the hearts of them by God himself. To that they had been born." For this love's sake they had come into the world, and the mingling of their lives was to be the perfect life, the intended ordained union of the soul of man with the soul of woman, indissoluble, harmonious as music, beautiful beyond all thought, a foretaste of heaven, a hostage of immortality. No, he, Vanamee could never never forget never was the edge of his grief to lose its sharpness never would the lapse of time blunt the tooth of his pain once more as he sat there looking off across the ranches his eyes fixed on the ancient campanile of the mission church the anguish that would not die leaped at his throat tearing at his heart shaking him and rending him with a violence as fierce and as profound as if it all had been but yesterday The ache returned to his heart, a physical keen pain, his hands gripped tight together, twisting, interlocked, his eyes filled with tears, his whole body shaken and riven from head to heel. He had lost her. God had not meant it, after all. The whole matter had been a mistake. The vast, wonderful love that had come upon them had been only the flimsiest mockery. Abruptly, Vanamee rose. He knew the night that was before him. At intervals throughout the course of his prolonged wanderings in the desert, on the mesa, deep in the canyon, lost and forgotten on the flanks of unnamed mountains, alone under the stars and under the moon's white eye, these hours came to him, his grief recoiling upon him like the recoil of a vast, and terrible engine. Then he must fight out the night, wrestling with his sorrow, praying, sometimes incoherent, hardly conscious, asking why of the night and of the stars. Such another night had come to him now. Until dawn he knew he must struggle with his grief, torn with memories, his imagination assaulted with visions of a vanished happiness, if this paroxysm of sorrow was to assail him again that night, there was but one place for him to be. He would go to the mission. He would see Father Saria. He would pass the night in the deep shadow of the aged pear trees in the mission garden. He struck out across cross, Kien Sabe, his face, the face of an ascetic, lean, brown, infinitely sad, set toward the mission church, In about an hour he reached and crossed the road that led northward from Guadalajara toward the Seed Ranch, and a little further on forded Broderson Creek where it ran through one corner of the mission land. He climbed the hill and halted, out of breath from his brisk walk, at the end of the colonnade of the mission itself. Until this moment Vanamee had not trusted himself to see the mission at night. On the occasion of his first daytime visit with Presley, he had hurried away even before the twilight had set in, not daring for the moment to face the crowding phantoms that in his imagination filled the mission garden after dark. In the daylight the place had seemed strange to him. None of his associations with the old building and its surroundings were those of sunlight and brightness. Whenever, during his long sojourns in the wilderness of the southwest, He had called up the picture. In the eye of his mind, it had always appeared to him in the dim mystery of moonless nights, the venerable pear-trees black with shadow, the fountain, a thing to be heard rather than seen. But as yet he had not entered the garden. That lay on the other side of the mission. Vanamy passed down the colonnade, with its uneven pavement of worn red bricks, to the last door by the belfry tower, and rang the little bell by pulling the leather thong that hung from a hole in the door above the knob. But the maidservant, who after a long interval opened the door, blinking, and confused at being roused from her sleep, told Vanamee that Sarria was not in his room. Vanamee, however, was known to her as the priest's protege and great friend and she allowed him to enter, telling him that, no doubt, he would find Sarria in the church itself. The servant led the way down the cool adobe passage to a larger room that occupied the entire width of the bottom of the belfry tower, and whence a flight of aged steps led upward into the dark. At the foot of the stairs was a door opening into the church. The servant admitted Vanamee, closing the door behind her. End of Book 1, Chapter 4, Part 1.